Merry Christmas, and welcome to the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Gary, is Tilt. Hello. Now, I'm going to start off with a little brain teaser for you. Because you remember that funny era when you had things like Countdown and even Jerry Stevens' telly quiz on on Christmas Day? So it's not unheard of to be having Sudoku-style challenges on the day itself. So I've got one for you right now. What are the following shows, all sitcoms, and all associated with the season of Goodwill have in common? Let's say everyone's favourite Christmas sitcom, Only Fools and Horses. Or you could have, say, Porridge. Got some seasonal specials of that. Or Steptoe and Son. If it's more latterly, you could say The Vicar of Dibley, or The Royal Family, or even My Family. Or nowadays, I guess it would be Mrs Brown's Boys. They're all BBC shows. That's true. And that's why you won't be hearing anything more about them at all over the next hour and a half. Because in a somewhat foolhardy move, we have decided to spend our Christmas with ITV. Tilt, why have we done this? It was your idea. I Don't blame me, it's got nothing to do with me. I want to spend Christmas with true movies and enjoy all those delightful TV films that begin playing in October. And probably some of them have got Tony Danza in them. It just so happens that Network DVD do a compilation called ITV Christmas Comedy, which is a compilation, for the most part, of sitcom Christmas specials. A couple of them are variety or sketch shows, I think you'd call them. So I think you just looked at the shelf and went, let's just watch that. That will be a good Christmas show. Now, we have already dealt with some of these before. Okay, well, let, let's make the best of this. So I'm looking forward to... Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just reel off some ITV sitcoms off the top of my head, and I'm, I'm sure these have all got Christmas specials. So let's say uh, Man About the House and George and Mildred and Never the Twain and Bless This House, and none of these are happening, are they? Do none of those have Christmas specials? They do, but in modern-day speak, ITV actually means ITV PLC, and that doesn't include Thames Television. Hence their exclusion from this four-disc box set. I hadn't noticed that. I'm not, these are all non-Thames. That's it. So all the shows we're going to be discussing today are actually going to come from far-flung places such as ATV and Yorkshire and Granada and London Weekend. Well, that's what's great about this, though, isn't it? This is the mainstream. I don't want to use words like journeyman because that has pejorative connotations. But this is just the common or garden British sitcom from ITV. It's the stuff that winds up being parodied. When you use the term sitcom, I mean, sitcom club, our logo is a sofa, simply because of that idea that a lot of sitcoms will have lengthy, chatty scenes by the sofas. And as Graham Garden, I think, once said, the reason that you see so many sofas in British sitcoms is because you see sofas in British houses. It's not some weird middle-class affectation. So that's one of the reasons this is good. It helps us get into things that are not elevated. I saw a tweet the other day. I don't know if it's right for me to name who tweeted this, but I saw a tweet the other day complaining about the way certain articles will try and make out that any sitcom that's the topic of the article was the first to do this, that, or the other. And it's not true. Often, yeah, they're ridiculously recent as well. Curb Your Enthusiasm was the first which featured an imperfect 
distorted version of the lead. What? No. Somebody then said, yeah, the, what about the Jack Benny show? <laughs> so this is the stuff that nobody's going to point to as being the first. And that's why it's good, because they also served. These are the foot soldiers of the British sitcom landscape. Now come in and stop me before I get to... Before you get to highfalutin and radio-free night waves. Okay, well, we're going to go through these in order, as they are on the discs. And as we mentioned, this is available network DVD. If you are listening to this prior to the big day itself, then this is going to be your Christmas Day viewing. Get out there and get it. And if you're listening to this after the big day itself, it's probably on sale via Network's own site or Amazon, so grab it anyway. So you'll have it for next year then. Okay, so we're going to start disc one, because we're better to start. And we find ourselves enjoying a Christmas special with the Dustbin Men. Didn't we already deal with that? Because, of course, this is a segment from All-Star Christmas Comedy Carnival and is therefore on Network's All-Star Christmas Comedy Carnival DVD. And we did that on Chaffee Cakes of Proust, so we could skip this. This preserves the fact that there was no Queen's Speech that day because it gets referenced in the script and also the fact that Des O'Connor is hosting All-Star Comedy Carnival. So it's nice where little details like that get preserved forevermore in passing, in the script, because otherwise things like that would be lost to the sands of time. And then we had Please, Sir. Yes. Well, I don't want to speak ill of Please, Sir, and I don't want to speak ill of Network DVD, because it's fantastic they put this together. Unfortunately, the Please, Sir, that they've picked as a representative Christmas special is a wedding episode it really is a payoff to a long televisual courtship. It assumes that you've been watching the show long enough that you care about all these characters and you know who they are. And it is absolutely the worst possible scenario for getting to know Please Sir for the first time. Well, we don't see the school for a start, do we? That's true. So that's unusual in itself. I mean, you've still got your favourite faces and what have you, but yes, it's a bit odd. Peculiar surroundings. It's almost like a sitcom film, but it's still just 25 minutes long. Well, a sitcom film would at least try to get you up to speed with who everybody is. This assumes that you've been watching, at the very least, their particular series that it is, if not the entire show from the beginning of the very first series. Let's move on from Please Sir, because we can't really do it justice. If you buy this DVD and you've never seen Please Sir and thought, I'd like to find out more about Please Sir, just skip this one. We can't keep on moving on at this speed. We'll be done in 20 minutes. Goodness sake. On the buses is next. And hey, hey. I did watch this one twice because I couldn't remember what happened. In it. <laughs> and I'm still not sure. We know that this is not the best ever Christmas Day edition of On the Buses. But how could it be? And if you don't know what we're referencing, you might want to plunder the archives and hear us talk about All-Star Comedy Carnival. Geese. Anyway. There's no geese in this. Nothing like that. No weird 60mm film inserts. Rich Varney is here. Michael Robbins is here. It's all normal. But it is actually in black and white. And I think, Tilt, that you owe... Not, not that it's your fault, but I think that you owe the listeners an explanation as to why some of the shows on this four DVD box set are actually in the black and white and yet are post-1969. In the changeover to colour, there had been agreements between management and crews about how much extra you got paid for working colour shows. It does involve a little bit more work in set design, makeup, lighting, 
And this agreement only held for a certain period of time. When the deadline came up, there was no agreement in place in how to continue this. And as a result, the crew said, we will continue to make the shows, but we're not going to make them in colour. It's referred to as the ITV colour strike. And so during a particular period, everything is made in black and white. We don't know when it will go out. So the colour strike is on and off. And including things like location filming. So you do get later on a couple of episodes of Coronation Street that are in colour, but whenever anybody goes outside, it's in black and white. <laughs> Imagine if that had just been the norm. And so instead of us talking about the weird transition between VT and film and people go outdoors, it was just always black and white outside. But this meant that ITV's second Christmas in colour wasn't. And hence Christmas Duty, our on-the-buses offering from Christmas Night 1970, is somewhat colourless. And yet we've got plenty of good, cheerful Christmas fare with everybody's favourite two lecherous, disgusting... Immoral unpalatable even immoral immoral (laughs) (laughs) they shouldn't have the liberty but anyway it's a different time so stan and jack they are out and about and they are making blakey's life hell for no apparent reason because yeah blakey's annoyed because the buses are late but otherwise they've not really got any reason to that's his job yep they've not really got any reason to smash up his teapot that he's bought for his mother for christmas day it's not a deliberate act, by the way. They don't actually take a hammer to it, but, you know, that, that happens. And, yeah, we've got a bit of faffing around in the depot with mistletoe. And then it's time for Stan to go home and have his Christmas dindins. However, before that can happen, Stan and Jack find themselves working on Christmas Day. And so that's the doings for our plot. And Blakey himself, of course, is in on the day itself. That's the plan then. So Stan and Jack, Blakey, they're working on Christmas Day and Arthur, he's had a skinful down at the Dog and Duck or the Haygarth or whatever you want to call the, the local place. And yeah, so we've got... There's no point in actually like just reading out verbatim everything that happens, but you can guess. There's a bit of chaos. And also, of course, tell you who does work on Christmas Day, the emergency services, such as the police and the firefighters both of whom turn up in this show. Moving on, all this and Christmas too. That's something we can really get our teeth into. Well, now here's the thing, because people are sitting there thinking, what do you mean? What's that all about? And I'm not in any way suggesting that the inclusion of this allows Network to feature an enormous photograph of Sid James (laughs) right at the front of the collage and perhaps plant the seed in people's minds that they were going to get themselves a ton of either Bless This House or Carry On Christmas specials. No, that's not the case. This is Sid's appearance on the DVD and joining him. Hey, we've got an explicit tag on this show, haven't we? Yes. So joining him, as once described in a book, a book that was actually published and sold on the shelves, joining Sid James is the pain in the arse himself, Kenneth Connor. Everybody liked working with Kenneth Connor. Actually, according to Kenneth Williams' diary, Sid James didn't like Kenneth Connor. Well, no, this is a thing, because you can't always believe what's in Kenneth Williams' diaries, as Peter Rogers said, because Peter Rogers referred to Kenneth Williams describing Peter Rogers turning up on the set wearing Wellington boots, and Peter Rogers said, I've never worn Wellington boots in my life. So there you go. But 
I, I would I would hope that wasn't the case. Certainly, there was needle between Sid and Kenny Williams. We know that. that that's that's hardly a big revelation. But if there is tension going on between Sid and Kenneth Connell, then it's not really visible here, is it? No, but this is written by Northern Irish playwright Sam Cree, and it does have that feeling of being a stage show. It's got kind of a rep company feel, really. It's just a little bit of unpretentious comic theatre. It's not good television. <laughs> no, but at the same time, we've watched this twice now, and one of them was not because we were going to be talking about it on the sitcom club. It was just by choice. So it's got to have something going for it. What it's got going for it is I think the spats effect is in play here, and also I think the timing of the show, because it's going out on Christmas Eve at quarter past ten, so it's a little bit later than you might expect, and actually later than most of the Carry On Christmas shows went out, because I think this is an off year for the Carry On Christmas shows, because they are 69, 70, 72, 73. So, yeah, we're still getting our Christmas helping of Sid, but just in different surroundings. But quarter past ten at night, Christmas Eve, I think this is ideal, because you are going to be sort of faffing around doing stuff for the next day, and so to have something like this, where it's not really demanding your attention, it's not... Not even heavy. It's not like Poirot or something like that, where you're you're expected to like follow some sort of plot. Nothing like that going on here. And it does very helpfully give you info dumps. I don't know. Does somebody say it is Christmas Eve after all? It's that kind of thing. I don't think anybody says that. I can't remember all the characters' names, but let's say one of the wives is called Judith. So you hear you know Sid say, you know, Oi, Kenny, it's your wife, Judith. So things like that, they're plentiful. They're in plentiful supply over the course of the hour. And one of Sid's daughters is expecting a baby. And is it her husband's in the RAF? Yes, yes. And yes. that's kind of mentioned in just, uh, oh, well, he's in the RAF. <laughs> <laughs> and we have, I don't know, weak little jokes like saying cascara instead of mascara. Tell you what, though, they don't have to put it away, don't they? They are drinking an awful lot in this show. Well, that feels really forced as well. It just feels like... The kind of thing that Chance in a Million was making fun of, but here it's played straight. Let's just have the characters get drunk. That will make them act silly. And we've got a bit of Gonk's Go Beat as well, because there are a few points when you feel Kenneth Connor is overdoing it because he's a bit lost. There's one bit when Sid James is patting his cheeks, and so Kenneth sucks them in, so like they've imploded, and pulls a face, but the camera doesn't go on to him. So it feels like it's just something he's doing to something, a bit of business. A little bit all at sea. I mean, they do have uh, lovely KPM music. Oh, yes. Which even keeps playing when the needle's not in the groove, did you? <laughs> we have a daughter who is doing a very bless this house kind of shtick as well. I'm the young generation, you just don't get me. No, at first I actually thought this was Sally Jason, but it wasn't. And... We have a few faces turn up over the course of the hour, one of which is Joe Gladwin. Unfortunately, he doesn't use any of the lines that he uses in The Whackers, such as, I like big knockers, me! He's doing a little bit of the guy who doesn't speak in... Walter. Nearest and dearest. Hmm. Have you been? So we have a sour couple, we have Janet Webb, we have jokes about Janet Webb's weight, which don't quite work in one respect because there's this 
whole idea that uh, Joe Gladwin and whoever's playing Joe Gladwin's wife, if you want to bring up the cast list, please do so. And Janet Webb, they're all meant to sit on the sofa, but <laughs> there isn't room for all three of them. No, there isn't room because for some reason one of them's sitting about five inches in <laughs> and left a big gap to her left-hand side just for the purpose of making a tight squeeze. And we can see it's like you just shuffle up. There's plenty of room for everybody. And then the uh, son-in-law from the RAF turns up with hair like a member of... Chicory tip. <laughs> Leave all of that pause in there because it actually it built tension. I think the listeners were, were on edge waiting to hear what was coming yes. up there. I'm sorry, my early 70s knowledge just kind of left me for a moment. <laughs> okay, so we've got Beryl Mason as Peggy Jones, his wife, and we've got Juliet Kempson as Linda Jones and Katie Allen as Sally Jones, the daughters. Kenneth Connor is Willie Beatty and Nicolette Rogue is Emily Beatty. And yeah, Joe Gladwin, Patrick Hall, Rose Power is Mrs. Hall. So it's off brand, bless this house, Christmas special. And I would not like to write off Sam Cree purely on the basis of this. He also wrote the screenplay for Let's Get Laid, which has Tony Haygarth in it. And we're doing that next year, aren't we? On the Sitcom Club and on Jaffa's Reproost <laughs> and Jaffaville. Doing all three of them. Now, you mentioned Walter. Of course, Walter does turn up on our next offering, which is Cinder Nelly. But we don't have to do that because we already did that. We did a show called Christmas in October and we dealt with three, four, some of the shows that are on this collection. So we can safely pass that by. It gives us more room to talk about Two's company. Oh no, it gives us more room to talk about Billy Liar. I would rather we just talk about Nearest and Dearest because I, I didn't really get one with Billy Liar. You've seen the film, yes? Yes, the film's fabulous. You read the book? I am a disgrace to the nation because I haven't. But I love the film. The film's fabulous. And from what little I'd seen of Billy Liar on, on the weekend, and the only bit I'd seen really was a bit on All-Star Comedy Carnival, I didn't take to it particularly well, and I, I still hadn't taken to it by the end of this full-length episode. See, in the film and the book, he's coming to a reckoning. Everything's going to collapse around him. In this, we have to have the magic reset button, so he gets away with it. And he's just extra unpleasant, I think. Another discussion we've had on Twitter with some of our followers is this idea that, actually, is, we're meant to like Billy in this? Are we? He seems spectacularly selfish, more than usual, and I guess part of it is we have this excuse for cutaways, him having bizarre little fantasies. But basically, he gets everybody Christmas presents that everybody likes, but it turns out he's just stolen them from work. And the boss finds out and comes in and takes everybody's Christmas presents away. And yet Billy gets what he wants for Christmas. That should have been the very last line in it. He should have just turned straight to the camera and just said, well, I got what I wanted, and that's what matters. And raise his middle finger. This has killed off any interest I have in seeing the rest of the sitcom. I can't really come back from that. I, there wasn't really a sense of an intricate series of lies that had come from little bits of laziness. It just felt like he, he did things to hurt people. 
and that was it. Fantastic turn from George A. Cooper as Billy's father. Mm. Yes. Jeff Roll from Drop the Donkey and Faith in the Future is Bill and Liar in this. And I don't know, it just didn't click for me. So yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm not, I know that the, the full series is out on DVD, but I'm not particularly inclined to delve into it just yet. So we're on to disc two. I don't know why I'm surprised about that. I mean, it, it naturally follows disc one. And shall we confess now that there are a handful of shows over the years that we've been doing sitcom club because we're actually coming up to five years now, believe it or not. There are a handful of shows. I remember Wendy Craig's Laura and Disorder was one of them where we've actually just jacked it in even before we got to the end of the first episode and just said, this isn't going to work. This is just meh. This isn't happening. And one of those was Two's Company. We tried to watch an episode of Two's Company once and I think I think we're both thinking it. I think you were the first to say it till it was just, nah, this isn't happening. So I had quite sort of low expectations for this, but I wouldn't say it was necessarily pleasantly surprised, but it was it was tolerable. Two's Company's got this sort of reputation as being in the, the, the panathean of ITV sitcoms alongside sort of Rising Damp and what have you. And I, I don't know, I just, it's perhaps a bit more witty or more engaged obviously in wordplay than maybe the average ITV sitcom of that particular period or even then I'm not really sure that's particularly fair because there's some superb dialogue in shows like Man About the House for example. A lot of Johnny Mortimer and Brian Cook's shows have got excellent wordplay and repartee and what have you. Can I mention the opening titles? They're a bit weird. It's, It's Elaine Stritch as a brash American and Donald Sinden is her stuffy British he's butler yeah or manservant because he's not in charge of an entire household and therefore he's not really a butler how do you know these things just do you know Alfred Alfred Pennyworth in Batman he's not a butler he's a valet is it valet or valet valet is guy who parks your car anyway so the opening titles are meant to be oh we're having an argument we don't really get along. And being British, Donald Sinden's character is represented by an animated lion whose neck is in the wrong place. <laughs> and I mean, you know, you can't move for lions in England. And Elaine Stritch is represented by a crane. By, I don't, I, I'm guessing maybe there's some faint idea that she's meant to be an eagle, but she's just long and thin. Looks like a crane. And not even crazy legs. And as we've mentioned before, I think we mentioned this... Uh, when we did Christmas Night with the Stars, we're talking about the live birds. We're talking about Mike Scott's theory that every sitcom should or does have an episode called A Night In and everybody comes to visit. And that's exactly what happens here. It's the old thing of, I think the other one's going to be away, so I'm going to get a member of the opposite sex over and have sex with them in every single room of the house. <laughs> <laughs> or play Yahtzee. I don't know. One of the so two. So Al- Elaine Stritch, she goes away for Christmas and that leaves Donald Sinden. And I think he's got, is it, is it all the Beverly sisters? And then, yeah, they're just having a whale of a time throughout the entire abode. Nothing is left <laughs> to the imagination. And of course, what happens is they're both staying. So it all gets awkward. And then somebody else turns up unannounced. This is, a, he flies the Atlantic just on the off chance that Elaine Stritch is at home. He hasn't warned her. Yeah, and if things had gone to plan, he was going to turn up at an empty house. 
this is mad. People don't do that in real life, do they? I have had unexpected guests arrive at the door on occasion, but not from, certainly not coming off a plane, put it that way. Now, it's not a sitcom. Do we talk about Stanley Baxter's Christmas box? I'd go on. Let's mention it in passing. Actually, why don't we just talk about Stanley Baxter generally? Because I'm not sure when we'll speak about him on you know, the podcast. And we've watched quite a bit of Stanley Baxter, haven't we? Because having watched this, Stanley Baxter's Christmas box from 1976, we were then inclined to watch a couple of his BBC shows from 85 and 86. Uh, the BBC shows were a bit stronger in the gag department. My mum doesn't like Stanley Baxter. And her point is, is that he just tends to dress up as women... And that's really it. <laughs> Whereas Danny LaRue is all about kind of letting the mask drop. Uh, Stanley Baxter's just kind of like living out his fantasy of being a Hollywood starlet, which is fine. But it generally means that once you kind of get to having the production number mounted and the costumes all in place, the gags seem to be one of the last things that have any attention paid to them. At least in this 76 one. I mean, full marks for doing an impression of Edward Everett Horton. There are nowhere near enough <laughs> impressions of that kind in British television. Uh, did, did nobody do it on Who Do You Do? <laughs> this one was weak, but checking some of Bex's other specials, no, if the gags are there, it does kind of come together. But we, yeah, we do have this odd little thing, even on the 80s specials. It's like nothing's actually really being parodied here. It's not doing an impression. So it's needed a bit of structure i think and a bit more thinking through because we've said before wouldn't it be fantastic to watch an impressionist who just did impressions of people from tcm american tcm just nothing but golden age of hollywood stuff and he does that but can we actually just have somebody on television this christmas do the hollywood party routine in its entirety for an hour but I will say this, having watched this special, then watched the two BBC specials, I fully intend now to buy uh, the entire box set of his ITV work. There are a couple of, I suppose you would say, well-known skits in this particular LWT show. Probably the most famous of all is the No Coward routine, which is then turned up in compilations and all sorts. It's that peculiar thing that it's not really a parody, it's a pastiche, it just could be a Noel Coward song is a bit like that Christmas Chaz and Dave song that's by the two Ronnies. <laughs> yes. I actually saw a trailer for that the other day on YouTube from Christmas 82. And the announcer actually says, and seasonal fun with the two Ronnies and their guests, Chaz and Dave. And I'm like, no, it's them. <laughs> I think part of it is, though, this is shot VT single camera. So Stanley's playing every character in a sketch. And I think it throws the pace off a little. By the 80s, I think things have caught up sufficiently that you can actually do a very pacey single-camera show of that fashion. Great theme tune, too. Yes, theme by Alan Ainsworth. And very unusually, this has got to be a rarity, the same theme on ITV and BBC shows. And we don't mean redone. It is exactly the same theme, carried over. That's very unusual, isn't it? Yes. And I remember thinking, before we started watching the BBC shows, I remember sort of expecting this to be Ronnie Hazelhurst, who'd be doing the score for it, and thinking, I wonder if that'll change things, because I really associate that particular sound of those LWT shows with Stanley Baxter. And I guess maybe he thought that as well, because he's brought over the arranger of the music from those shows to the BBC. The, the BBC shows benefited a little bit by a bit more use of film, and they had 
some other people on them. For example, Rory Bremner as Barry Norman was on there. And also the other thing we've got to point out as well, because you asked me while we were watching the first BBC show, you said, what time of night did this go out? Because some of it's very near the knuckle, isn't it? Yes. He uses the word gangbang. <laughs> Is it the ITV special where there's the whole idea of little bits flying off the costume? He's wearing, you know, like a flesh-coloured leotard, but the last sort of fig leaf falls off and they're basically coloured in the crotch. It's <laughs> Yeah, there's something a bit bluer than usual about Stanley Baxter. But I think there's a possibility that if you're doing an impersonation of somebody, and particularly if you're doing an impersonation of somebody from yesteryear in their peak, does that give you a certain sort of degrees of separation argument? So it's not Stanley Baxter saying that. No, it's Hedy Lamar or whoever. And also, no. is, it, it, no, you don't you think no. so? No? You don't subscribe no. to that idea? So the rag trade. I really like the rag trade. And I think that we should do the rag trade at some point on Sitcom Club. In case you didn't know, by the way, maybe this is the first time you've ever listened to Sitcom Club. Sitcom Club is coming back next year for one of eight shows. Because we're also going to do eight Jaffa Cakes for Proust and eight editions of Jaffaville as well. But many more details about that next year. Anyway, the rag trade, one of those shows which made the leap, so originally BBC, early 60s, and then made the leap to LWT in the late 1970s after an attempt to restage it on BBC. There was a non-broadcast pilot on BBC with Tony Robinson in the role played by Reg Varney and then latterly by Christopher Beanie. Anyway, by this point, this is end of the first season on LWT. We've got even more confusion because we've got another crossover with another show because of course this is Chesney and Wolf so we've got a character from another show i.e. on the buses. We've got Anna Karen as Olive now appearing in this show as It's a cinematic universe! It is! Yes indeed we're going back to the sitcom universe. We need to revisit the sitcom universe at some point. I'm wondering if anything has shifted. The rag trade good fun this. I enjoyed this. I'd seen it before but what did you think because I don't think you hadn't seen this before had you? Meh. Now, I'm going to have to interject at this point because it is Christmas and it's a season of goodwill and all that kind of thing. And I'm acutely aware that so far we've been sort of critical of every single one of the shows that we've talked about. There is a reason for this. One of the reasons for this is that we did cherry pick all the best bits for Christmas in October all those years ago. That is true, yes. So this is all the stuff that's left over. I was like Peter Jones. Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe, again, the Spats Effect, and if you're a new listener, the Spats Effect is what we mean when we say that he just liked the overall ambience, the overall atmosphere of the show. It's not necessarily belly laughs, but you just sort of feel comfortable there. I like the overall atmosphere of the rag trade. Just a bit of a feeling, again, of like on the buses. Oh, we hate doing our job. Let's pilfer and slack off. And people will like us because of it. I'm not wishing in any way to cast dispersions about the great British workforce, but Till, I think you are on record as saying that you yourself have never worked in sort of run-of-the-mill office. Is that correct? Yes, but it still worked. I still met deadlines. I didn't slack off. I could have nicked so many razor blades if I wanted to, but I didn't. As somebody who has worked in a nine-to-five sort of office, and has also worked in a warehouse on occasion. I'm not saying this personally, I'm just saying that, that people do on occasion slack off and also have been known occasionally to engage in the odd little bit of pilfering. And I'm not just talking about the idea that 
I occasionally snuck in an extra slice of bacon underneath you the fried bread. You used to roll up the bacon, didn't you, and tuck it in your cheeks? What? No, I didn't do that. No, that would have been outrageous. He kept stealing bacon, right? By the end of a year, he'd rebuilt the pig. And then did some weird screen test film with the pig. I know it happens, but just the way it seems to be shown to be utterly glorious and a good and right thing to do to not do your job. Yeah, but they're also sort of addressing the fact that industrial relations in the UK, particularly at this time, industrial relations in the UK in the original rag trade, that's the backdrop to I'm a white jack. And arguably by the time 77 rolls around, you're getting very close to winter discontent and so on. And so this is pretty much the unions at the absolute peak of the power. And that's what's being parodies is the fact that Miriam Carlin you know, she can wheel off every single rule in the book and she can come up with some sort of convoluted reason as to why the workers are slacking off or whatever it may be. Peter Jones is less lovable than Stephen Lewis, I'll give you that. Stephen Lewis really is trying to do the best he can to run an efficient bus service that helps people. Peter Jones is a little bit more fly. Yes, he is, but also I'm going to suggest that that's probably closer to the truth because Blakey is still an employee, whereas... Fenner, it's his company. So yeah, I just I just can't warm to it, that's all. Okay, well let's see how we get on with the next show because I like this show. Again, I think that expression warm to it, I think this fits the bill for the next show because again, it's not better than laughs, but I enjoyed Bless Me Father. And I've not really seen a great deal of it. I think this is maybe the second or third episode that I've seen. I've not seen the full series. Which is remiss of me because again it's available on DVD. It's very much a mug of cocoa. Uh, it's very gentle, very comforting. Of course, it's written by somebody who was a curate and then later left the Catholic Church over their teachings on contraception. But it's really about a small town and how important the church is to the small town. And some of the episodes have interesting little things about the plasticity of that brand of Catholicism. There are certain times when you get the sense that Father Doddlesworth, the central character played by Arthur Lowe, is all about, I don't know, obeying the spirit of the law and completely defying the letter in some cases. I don't want to give away, there's, there's an interesting ending to one particular show, which is all about how Father Doddleswell believes in a particular doctrine and teaches it and proclaims it to be true. And then we find out at the end that he kind of thinks that there's a way out of it, the way that it doesn't count. It's basically all about him lying <laughs> about one of his teachings because it's the right thing to do. So it's a peculiar little show in that respect, in that it's the work of somebody who was committed enough to take orders and then saw something in the structure that caused him to leave. But this, for this Christmas special, it's just, it's your religious bit, really. It's your good religious bit. It's not Alleluia. It's well-structured. It's nicely played. It's Arthur Lowe probably being a little bit more like Arthur Lowe the person. That thing that I always heard said about him was that he was pompous, but sometimes you weren't sure if he was actually sending himself up. Father Duddleswell, much more than Captain Mannering, will say something outrageously pompous or arrogant just to get a rise out of somebody. He's an odd, sly character. David Ryle appears in this episode as well. And, of course, in the last sort of you know decade or so before his passing, he quite often turned up at Christmas in Outnumbered. So David Ryle's character is the local bookie and 
atheist. I don't think it says on a sign in his window, turf accountant and atheist. <laughs> Again, it's part of that thing that they represent opposite sides sometimes, but they'll work together for the good of the community. The army game. We've got a little bit of interesting false billing. This is odd, yeah. This, is, this uh... claims to have an army game Christmas special. It's not. It's the last third of a show called Chelsea at Nine. And we've got videotape from 1960. I think the earliest surviving videotape, possibly the earliest surviving videotape from British television is something from a rediffusion anthology of plays from 1958. I'm curious to know, does only this last third exist? Or have they only put this last third on it because it's got the army game connection? It means they don't have to pay out to clear the first two thirds. Either way, I'm just going to say this is a bit of a bonus. It's not the army game. It's something entirely different. They're doing a pantomime. It's one of those things where they're not really in character or out of it. I'm not sure we're meant to get any sense that this is... What were they called? What was the name of the company in the army game? The Lads of Blank hang Company. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Are they putting uh... on a pantomime or is this the cast of the army game put on a pantomime which they play half in the characters in the pantomime or half in their characters from the army game? William Hartnell's not there, is he? All it says here is the exploits of a bunch of army conscripts. That's not used to anybody, is it? Anyway, that's it for the army game. It's not really an army game thing, but it's a fascinating bit of telly. I mean, of course, it's also Granada presenting a show from London. Also, this is the army game put on a pantomime. When did this show go out? January 7th. What? Now, I know you're going to say it's still technically Christmas and also you do still get pantomimes going all the way through January. That's all very well. But come on. You're not going to be in the mood for this. No, Christmas is over by January. the 7th. Come it? on. Is it? I don't know. No, as far as I'm concerned, Christmas is over with, you know, by about sort of five o'clock on Christmas Day. As soon as Sky Sports News starts ramping up the promotion for the Boxing Day fixtures, that's when Christmas Day is done. I have stated an outrageous falsehood on this very podcast, and I would like to apologise to the nation. I mentioned earlier on that the justification for Sid James being on the front cover was the inclusion of All This and Christmas 2. I had omitted to mention that, of course, Disc 2 features the appropriately titled Merry Christmas episode of George and the Dragon. We're talking about whether Sid James disliked Kenneth Connor. We know what Kenneth Williams thought. We don't know how factual that is. We do know that Sid James and Peggy Mount got on famously. And I think that bleeds into the show. Mm -hmm. There's just some feeling, some X ingredient that you can't quite identify, but energy is probably a slightly fanciful, new agey word to use. But something's happened to the energy of this show because the two leads like each other. And of course, we have Yutha Joyce. Still in her dolly bird phase. This is a really... I'm not going to say necessarily underrated show. I don't think that's true. But it's its one which... I think, in all honesty, I think the fact that this is a black and white show I think has worked against it in later years. I think if this was all in colour, I think this would be shown on ITV3 every day, to be honest. And there's an interesting element that you think by the name George and the Dragon, oh, so Sid James is always trying to cop off with birds. And oh, Peggy Mount, what she's going to be a right battle axe? No, that is the idea, but it doesn't seem to develop like that. Peggy Mount's got a properly rounded character. She's shown to be nice. 
when it's necessary to be nice. We even have this odd little bit. There are some children singing Christmas carols and I'm waiting for them to cheek her off. No, they're well behaved, but they're still quite funny. This show needs to be looked into. We should watch all of George and the Dragon at some point. And of course, George and the Dragon also features John LeMessurier and Keith Marsh from Love Thy Neighbour and Andy Cap, which of course was famously pulled halfway through an episode in the Yorkshire area. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. Sorry, Ed. Okay, disc free. Now, we're getting very much into Yorkshire territory here because, in fact, the entire disc free is Yorkshire focused. So, to begin with, we have No Place Like Home. Hang on a minute, I thought we didn't have any BBC shows. Bo, I'm of course joking because that's the name of the episode. The show in question is My Husband and I. This is what Pam Valentine and Michael Ashton did after That's My Boy. This was their next writing project and. It's better than That's My Boy in one important respect. Molly Sugden's character isn't stupid. It's quite nice to see her play a character who's not unpleasantly pretentious or vulgar and stupid. She works at an advertising agency. She's an advertising executive. So, of course, you do have that thing that she'll have to speak in a certain way to indicate this is an executive, and it will occasionally drop, so she'll be all Yorkshire and working class, but it's not false. It's just you have different modes for different ways of speaking to people, formal, informal, but there are too many characters. It's quite a lot of characters in this, isn't there? They've got uh, Doc Morrissey, who's running the agency, and you've got Deddy Davis, who quite often plays sort of confused old deer, as in the rag trade. And in this, she's been a completely different role. She looks like she just walked off the set of Dynasty. But The Office is a bit like The Office in Take a Letter, Mr. Jones, in that we have characters who are meant to fulfil certain roles, but we could easily lose one in Take a Letter, Mr. Jones. And in this, we could lose two or three. And the reason they say two or three is I can't remember exactly how many characters I'm talking about. <laughs> they all kind of oddly blend. So we have the posh one and we have the nasty one. And I think we have another couple in between and we have one who's just there. There's a bit which is, I guess, meant to be crosstalk and it really isn't. It's just mean. Right, so the plot of the show is that Molly Sugden works as an exec at this advertising agency and her husband is the doorman security guard on the ground floor. It's executive stress turned inside out. We both work at the same place, but we do radically different jobs. And in this particular episode, there's this idea of are they going to retire to a villa in Spain? There's a discussion about a villa with one character going, a villa in Spain? Like that's a joke. And one character goes, oh, I'd love one. And the other character goes, yes, why don't you get daddy to buy you one? It's like, that's not really a gag. That's just common abuse. And then this other character says, it. Well, I don't know, somebody says something and the reply is, shut up! And we have this catty character who's making jokes about Molly Sugden's age. And again, they're just mean. Is that Carol Hawkins? It might well be. I don't know. But no, I, I never, actually, I've never seen any, my husband and I, before. And I think we've seen more episodes of That's My Boy than are advisable. I mean, we've seen more than prescription strength, put it that way. Did we mention that her husband in this is played by William Moore, 
best known as Language Timothy from Sorry. And I think he was Betty's husband in Coronation Street. Cyril Turpin, wasn't that his character? But in real life, he was married to Molly Sugden. Which means you get to use the real wedding photos in the opening titles. I'd actually like to think that for legal reasons or perhaps equity rules, they actually just had to restage them anyway. If it wasn't taken by an official Yorkshire TV photographer, it wasn't allowed in. Thankfully, the guy who did the wedding photos later on went to work for Yorkshire, so if it worked out fine. Are we going to mention the weird cover of the VHS of That's My Boy with Christopher Blake looking like he's had an accident with a mangle? It does look like he's caught in some sort of personal hell. Anyway, that's it for my husband and I. Uh, I think it really rested on the screen presence of Molly Sugden a bit more than it should have. Coming up next, we're staying at Yorkshire, and we've got a bit of a curiosity, because I remember there was a reason why this was a bit odd. Only When I Laugh, and the episode in question is called Away for Christmas, and the description says, Can X-ray figures and the others expect Christmas cheer from Dr. Forp? That's not really the, the, the plot, though, is it? That's sort of a generalisation. Whereas in actual fact, we've got this peculiar bit of business going on where they've got an extra patient in the ward with them. So extra bed is brought in and you're wondering who's this going to be. Maybe it's going to be Ronald Lacey or perhaps Rodney Buse. That's who it should have been. Yeah, to you know, get a bit of crossover fun. Is this going to be like the Jerry Lewis... Dean Martin reunion and that nobody's warned James Baller. <laughs> it would be fun just to see his face. Be like when Tom Arnold showed up at Roseanne's roast. Anyway, so it's a lad. It's a, it's a kid from the children's ward who comes in. And they're thinking, well, why is he being brought in here? Hmm, surely be happier on the children's ward. And it turns out that he has a peculiar interest. Namely, he's a big fan of lit matches and lighters and things of that ilk. And of course, one of them's already given him a lighter. Well, it was Figgis, wasn't it? Because what's he like? I don't remember. I always know there's one called Figgis, but I can never remember which one is called Figgis. No, well, the thing is that I associate the word Figgis or the name Figgis with Peter Bowles because it's usually him saying Figgis. But in actual fact, Figgis is James Bolam. And you've got Christopher Strolley as well. And I've previously speculated about should it actually have been Rodney Buse and Christopher Strolley's role, but that would have been, you know, Okay, we've got to get away from this whole Likely Lads universe. Cause... We did start talking about Christopher Strawley playing Mark in Peep Show 78. Yes, exactly. And by the way, we watched an episode of Full House the other, didn't we? Moving on. <laughs> the thing about this only when I left is the dubbing. That's the thing that you want to talk about. So I remember seeing this, I think, probably on UK Gold or Carton Select or something. And I think maybe I had it on videotape or something like that. And I said to my brother, you've got to see this. See if you can work out what's going on, because I've already seen the end credits, so I knew what it was. But basically, you've got Figgis dressed as Santa Claus, and he goes down to the children's ward, and I think he's like trying to pilfer some of the presents. I think to give to the kid on their own ward, not, not for his own market stall or anything like that. And all the children wander up and say, hey, look, it's Santa Claus, but is it Santa Claus, or is it just somebody pretending to be Santa Claus? The weird thing is you don't see the kids' faces during this conversation, and that's because of all being dubbed by a female adult voice artist. And there's not too many shows do that, is there? You don't get that in Hallelujah yeah, with the kid that keeps on going on about a whole lot of women. He's not dubbed, that's his own voice. I, I don't know what the reason is, if there's some sort of thing going on about the, the, whenever it's been recorded or the circumstances of it's recorded. Because I know, obviously, when you're working with kids, you, know, you have chaperones and you know there's all different rules about how many hours they can work and what have you. So something strange is going on there. But whatever reason, yeah, it's a real oddity. 
once you're aware of that fact, then that whole sort of scene just takes on a whole vibe of its own. Instead of Rodney Buse, why didn't Derek Branch call up his old school friend? <laughs> now, are you going to leave that hanging in the air? Are you just going to are you going to reveal who that is, or just let people maybe Google that? Let's leave that hanging. Yeah. Okay. Right. That would have been utterly bizarre. The Santa Claus beard comes off, and then again, a chunk of the audience probably wouldn't recognise it. <laughs> now let's jump over the next three shows. What? We did them. Did we? Well, that's my boy. Yes, we talked about That's My Boy and they're all thawing out turkeys. Okay, so we did, yes. With hair dryers that don't make any noise and possibly aren't even plugged in. We talked about Hallelujah, you just mentioned it then, where the little boy goes, I got a whole lot of woman! And disc four, of course, was Duty Free. Duty Free Christmas, which we spoke about previously. Let's just have a little moment for Keith Barron. And let's have a little moment for the fact that Keith Barron was in a show called It's Dark Outside. Dark crime drama, I recommend it. But we're not getting away from the Christmassy embrace of Yorkshire television because it's now You're on the Young Twice. And we've got more Peggy Mount, and this time alongside Pat Coombs. Now, this is a show, funnily enough, which has actually seen the light of day recently because this has had an airing on ITV3 in recent years, including this year. And I think, actually, I think, I think I'm right in saying, I may be wrong on this, so don't quote me, but do check your local listings. I think I'm right in saying that if you're listening to the show pretty much on the day it came out, you might actually be in time to see this because I think this is actually going out on ITV3 in the very early hours of Christmas morning. Something about like five o'clock in the morning or something like that. So have a wee peek. You're young twice, towards the night before Christmas, and we've got a special guest. We've got David Barman appearing in this. Glenn Edwards. Because I always think he's called Glenn Houston and that's not him. I always get Glenn Edwards mixed up with Garfield Morgan mixed up with David Dacre. Right, yes, yeah. Apart from the fact that they're all bald. I don't think there's any good reason for that, but it really does happen in my head. Unfortunately, Glenn Edwards hasn't brought his partner in policing, Gavin Campbell, with him on this occasion. So, it's just himself. So the idea behind You Only Young Twice is it's old ladies in an old folks' home. So it's a way of bringing different personality types who wouldn't normally be together, together. So we have the drunken old dear, we have Peggy Mount playing the Peggy Mount type. She's irascible, but she's not unpleasant. She's not a full-blown battle axe. Pat Coombs is playing a character who's away with the fairies. A child who's never really grown up. What I'm tiptoeing around is, this is sitting in an old folks' home. When you have a character who's a bit like that, you might be straying into a world that's genuinely upsetting for people but here i just think she's just a type i get the sense she was probably always like that if they ever do have any dialogue that reveals anything about their past funnily enough i was having a conversation on twitter about sitcoms and the first instances of widescreen sitcoms and i'd mentioned in passing keeping mum with stephanie cole and i remember yes. that being very sort of controversial and getting very heavily to... criticized and i think some people had to point to that there was dialogue mentioning that no this was the character was just permanently dotty mm -hmm. and there are mentions that even way back when even when the central character of the song was a child he was getting bizarre presents so we've got all the cast members in this including dana king and lally bowers this is also pam valentine and michael ashton this is a really enjoyable show actually i've seen a few of these on itv3 and it's good, silly fun. Well, that's all we've got time for. There's no more shows to talk about. Merry Christmas, bye. Whoa, 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 whoa. hang oh, on a second. Oh, no, 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 no. No, you're not getting off that easily. We've got to do it. Come on, it's time.
I was really hoping that you were going to say, oh yeah, we did Home to Roost. Remember, we did it last year. We did an entire podcast on it. Yes, yes, I remember. Yes, yes, that's it. Yes. We didn't know, did we? No, we didn't. I have rather vivid memories of watching this show on Christmas Day 1996 because it got a repeat on Channel 4. And I stayed with it for the full hour. Then went and had me Christmas dinner. And actually, Christmas 96, that was one of the best lineups of recent years. I mean, you had Jurassic Park and had the new Only Fools and Horses and you had the 1970 Morgan Wise and the Vicar Dibley with the turkeys and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so there was some good stuff on that year. And there was Home to Roost as well. So anyway, this went on a bit, didn't it? You were talking earlier on about Billy Liar and characters, younger characters in shows sort of behaving in a really selfish, self-centred manner for no apparent good reason. That pretty much applies to Reese Dinsdale and Rebecca Lacey's characters in this because Henry's just having a nice little Christmas. He's got a nice wee Christmas planned with Sherry Hewson. Again, having sex in every room in the house. Well, yeah, but it's fine. It's not like Peep Show where there's cameras in every room and Reese-Dinsdale's watching them. That, that would have just been utterly bizarre. That would have been horrible. But anyway, no, nothing like that going on. Reese-Dinsdale being horrible to his televisual father isn't enough, though. They have to draft in other characters. So we've got Rebecca Lacey from May to December. And herself alongside their younger brother. They all suddenly turn up. Again, people turn up out of the blue for no apparent reason, at Christmas time especially. And Henry is middle-aged and divorced and, you know, he's entitled to do what he likes at Christmas. But I don't see what the problem is. And yet, no, it's not happening. See, what we're saying about George and the Dragon, here we have the stereotypical, horrible, selfish, mean child who just says, shut up, I hate you, in response to everything. Not funny, not interesting. Rebecca Lacey comes across as having this weird fixation, selfish, wants to keep her father all to herself. What did she call him? Dumpling? But she gets oddly offended at the idea that he might want to spend Christmas. And You can tell that it's not really her real feelings, that's it. There's this delivery of, of a line of Henry and the kids, it would be a family Christmas or a merry Christmas. Will it? Will it? And so we get this sense that it's just really, we don't want you, we just don't want anybody else to have you. And he then nips off to a hotel and books every single room so he can have sex in it. <laughs> he reserves use of the knight in armour. And they turn up at the hotel using his credit cards. Yeah, exactly. So he could have had them done for free. And fair. it's just all yeah. about spoiling his Christmas. I guess they're trying to go for a door slamming fast, but it doesn't happen and I mean this is the most depressing thing I've ever seen Sherry Houston in and she was in an episode of the Sandbaggers <laughs> okay normally then the reason that they're getting on Henry's case is because oh well the little one no no we've done we fit no that's it we finished with Home to Roost no one, one thing I will say in Home to Roost defense I think a lot of sitcoms would be enhanced by having Tim Badder as the head waiter just wander on into shot and look disapprovingly at what's going on. Did you say a lot of sitcoms? Yes. I think I'll broaden it out. <laughs> a lot of things. I mean, not even necessarily television or film. Or just <laughs> life in general would be better if Tim Barrett just walked in as a head waiter. So if you're ever up to no good in whatever circumstances, yeah. I don't know, maybe you are slacking on the photocopying or you're, you're pilfering paperclips or whatever it is. He just wanders on and gives you that look. 
Or maybe slipping slices of bacon underneath your fried bread at Tesco canteen. Right, so, well, I'll actually give a direct quotation from myself. I'm not going to start speaking about myself in the third person. I'm not, not like that. But I'm going to say to what I said to yourself when you proposed watching, watching. I said, how long is it? And you said, it's all right, it's only half an hour. And I thought, oh, okay, right, go on then. And, and it wasn't just the fact that it was past midnight. It was like, oh, please don't let this be an hour. And thankfully, it wasn't. So it wasn't so bad. Of course, watching ran for, was it 54 episodes? Mm, something like that. So this is the first Christmas special seasoning, but we also had twitching, slipping, and reverting. Almost sounds like a collection of album by the Folksman. And urinating? <laughs> Good solid premise for this, which is Malcolm wants to spend Christmas with Brenda. They're now kind of officially boyfriend and girlfriend. I guess they've got that out of the way. But Malcolm's mum doesn't like Brenda, is very much against him having his own Christmas. He has to have the proper family Christmas at home. So they have a little separate Christmas. I think before Christmas, isn't it? They have a fantasy Christmas. It's just this year I heard about something called Friendsgiving. Have you heard about that? What? Friendsgiving is possibly the Friday or the Saturday after Thanksgiving where you have all your friends over and you have a Thanksgiving with them instead of your family. Oh, just bugger off. Bloody hell. What? I thought that was a really nice idea. No, i I tell you why, because it's reminded me of the existence of that god-awful advert, and I'm trying to remember what it was for. I think it was Doritos or something. And it had basically all of these millennials, all of these youths, and they were having Christmas together and they were bemoaning the fact that one of the group wasn't there because he was spending Christmas unbelievably with his family. Ah, oh, the bastard. And, oh, Millennials are now approaching their mid-30s, you know. Oh, whatever. Well, what, what, what's the current crop called? iGen. Oh, that you've just made that up, haven't you? Well, it's, that's what I've read. There's a few different names going around, but I thought iGen. Yeah, that kind of works. That that iGen sounds like a, a tablet that you would see. But that's the whole thing. We're talking about people for whom tablets are something they've grown up with. They'll get nostalgic about tablets. Like, oh, do you remember? Do you remember those thick tablets? They were like half an inch, something like you know, quite half an inch thick. You know, because when by the time they're middle aged, they'll all be using tablets that are as thin as paper. The iGen sounds like a tablet you would see on the bootleg stuff Twitter feed. What, like mine? Yeah. I've got a tablet. It's not a good tablet, but it's big. The price is low. The screen is big. I don't really care that the keyboard that pops up doesn't really work properly. I just want a big tablet and I haven't got any money. Thank you, Dragon. It's not really... Is that a Dragon? Is it? Yeah, it's only got 32k. No, (laughs) it's called the Dragon (laughs) Touch. Is it by Texas Instruments? So, yeah, w- watching was what it was. It was all right. And, of course, we had the um, ending. Yes, the ending. Because th- because they're not having a proper Christmas, they call it Chinese Christmas because, of course, the Chinese have a different New Year. And this is a cue for Malcolm to put on a lampshade and put in some false teeth, which actually is more of a stereotype for the Japanese. And I'm not saying it's accurate. I'm just saying that's usually where you see the stereotype deployed. And he goes, oh, sure. And yeah, he does come across as a bit of an arsehole. He, he looks like a villain in a Batfink cartoon. 
it's isn't it amazing that humor of its time is now 1987. Well, were we talking? We were talking the, the other day off air about things such as Little Britain, which still gets shown. I mean, it still gets shown on on Gold late at night. But I don't know that Little Britain. We went would... through this with Sandwich Man. I th- I th- the world's had enough of two white guys talk about race. I've forgotten we said, yeah, it was on Sandwich Man, wasn't it? I've forgotten about that. Right, okay. We've done that. Nobody really needs to hear our opinions on that anymore. So that was the ITV Christmas comedy box set. And next year, we're going to be doing the Sky Channel Christmas comedy (laughs) box set. And then the Wire TV, (laughs) Sound TV, which Sound TV didn't even have a Christmas. Yeah, BSB all over again. If only Sound TV had had a Christmas, we would have actually, we would have done that, wouldn't we? We would have spent Christmas Day with Sound TV and reviewed the entire 24 hours. I, I never got it. It never turned up on my cable provider. We need to actually talk at some point about... It's a bit of a, I suppose you would say, oddity. And also, it, it's faintly depressing. But the years in which channels like UK Gold and Granada Plus just showed ordinary shows on Christmas Day... And in a way, they're sort of waving the white flag because they're saying, look, we know that no buckers watching. We know that people are watching BBC. So what the hell's the point of us churning out a load of Christmas specials? Now, thankfully, Gold doesn't take that approach because nowadays, Gold, they basically show Only Fools and Horses all day. But this is in an era when, you know, there might have been a new Only Fools and Horses on that year. Ordinary sitcom episodes and drama episodes on Christmas Day. It's not right, is it? Well, some people might welcome a chance to get away from it all. So that was classic ITV Christmas comedy. It's rated 12, and it's available on network. DVD is a four-disc set. And despite everything that we said about it, you should get it anyway. Because, because of what we said about it, you want to see some of this for yourself. So anyway, I think we actually need to say Merry Christmas people, don't we? Because it's Christmas time. So, season's greetings to everybody who has joined us on the Sitcom Club and Jaffa's Reproost and Jaffaville this year. What a bumper crop of guests. We've had great interaction with people on Twitter and with people on Facebook and we're really appreciative of everybody who's been listening and everybody who's shared our stuff or liked our stuff or whatever it may be and we're going to be taking a little break but that's not the end we are back next week to see out 2017 and we will be jaffering the Beatles one last time and we'll be watching Yellow Submarine and in the meantime you can follow us on Twitter Jaffas for Proust you can find us on Facebook at The Sitcom Club confusingly enough and meanwhile, on podnose.com, you can find every single one of the shows that we've done. And you can also find all manner of other shows as well. There's a huge Podnose network of shows and new things coming in 2018 as well. So I understand. So yes, all the fun of the fair there. So in the meantime, all that means to be said is tilt. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Feliz Navidad. Prospero año. Well, however you spend Christmas, have a good one. And thank you again, everyone, for joining us on the Sitcom Club.